Coming up next. I love Monday as much as Friday. And that to me is worth more than than whatever those golden handcuffs would be worth. The Job Talk podcast shares stories from people who are passionate and love what they do in their careers. Through conversation, we explore their careers, past work experiences, and the education that got them to where they are now. We are putting together a Career Crisis Ultimate interview series. We are asking experts to give their best advice and guidance around work anxiety, career pressures, career goal setting, and ultimately career transformation. To learn more about this special interview series and get notified when it's available, please visit our webpage at thejobtalk.com help. Today's guest is Rick Leaf. Here's our job talk with the performer and producer. I'm going to read part of your resume that you sent me. Performer, producer, songwriter, recording artist, video editor, slam poet, published author, freelance writer, TV host, event producer, and sommelier. Did I pronounce that correctly? Sure. You <laughs> are the creator... <laughs> You are the creative director for Tribe of One, a national arts collective of indigenous and settler musicians, painters, poets, and dancers. And you were the producer and host of the podcast, Being Creative. Your resume reads like the most interesting man on earth. Um, <laughs> did I miss anything? <laughs> that was for an application, yeah, for a position I had just applied to as an artist in residence. So I was really listing out all of the things that would be relevant to that position. Normally, I I try to just go with performer and producer because it's, uh, you know, there's so many things that that go with that, but performer and producer. Where did you grow up? Where were your formative years? I grew up in Southern Alberta in traditional Blackfoot territory. Uh, my family, uh, my grandparents came here from Northern Scandinavia. Nice. And the land of the Sami people. So yeah, that's where, uh, that's where I grew up. I, I was actually just telling my wife, oh, this is, oh you're in Alberta, right? Yes, I'm in Edmonton. Yes, and I have yeah. Danish parents, so I love ah, Scandinavia. Yes, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I've probably lived outside of Alberta longer than I lived there, but I was born and raised there, and I, I feel like it gives me um, all the freedom to be as opinionated about Alberta as I want to be. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of opinions in this province, so um, but. We're yeah, I don't really that. need to add a whole lot of, uh, you know, everybody's <laughs> saying everything. So um, yeah. what what were you doing when you left high school? That's usually where I like to pick up people's stories. What, what kind of uh, things did you find yourself getting into? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, like everybody probably has a young dream uh, as a dream. Young Canadian kid, I wanted to play hockey. Secretly, that was my dream. So I was kind of chasing that dream a little bit. Probably unlikely, but, uh, you know, everybody has that kind of a dream. So it was all about sports. It was all about athletics. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, I managed to land a job doing ultrasonic inspection on the Trans-Canada Pipeline, just making tons of money. Uh, the kind of a job in the in the industry, gas and oil industry, that a monkey could do. And... Uh, Two things happened. Uh, one, I, on one of my breaks, I went back to the little town 
um, where my parents were living. I was driving home one Sunday afternoon, really beautiful in the middle of January, having a Chinook. So the, the snow was melting and a whole bunch of kids racing down the road, lost control and slammed into my truck and sent me flying off uh, at 60 miles an hour, whatever, out into the, to the wild blue under. I, I woke up three days later, been airlifted into the Foothills Hospital in Calgary and uh, was on life support machines breathing for me. They don't know if I'm paralyzed or whatever. A uh, couple things happened that were really dramatic then for me. I couldn't, uh, obviously all of my sports, you know, you're broken, a million things are broken. Uh, had to learn to walk again, all that jazz. So um, the sport dream, the hockey dream was over. So was a lot of the, even the job I was doing, couldn't really do that anymore. And in the process of maybe say it was a year in the hospital and recovery and rehab and all that kind of stuff in and out of the hospital, it, you know, one of the things that, that happens in, the, in a situation like that <clears throat> is it's just so boring. And so I'd ask somebody if they could bring me uh, this hand was uh, these fingers were broken. This wrist was broken, but I had this one hand and I asked somebody if they could bring me a keyboard. And so they would give me these headphones. They put this keyboard on my kind of lap in my bed and I would just I didn't play keyboard at the time. And I just started to learn how to play it. And songwriting became how I started to kind of work through all of those emotions and feelings and everything about it felt like at 19 or 20, whatever I was, that my life was over. My dreams were over the frustration, the anger, the bitterness, the depression, all of that stuff. And that was how I ended up becoming, uh, you know, an artist. So I kind of feel like I have these two different lives. One was about sports and athletics and, and those kind of dreams. And then when those were over, it was kind of like art and music, songwriting, whatever those things, uh, kind of swooped in as, uh, yeah, helping me heal emotionally and mentally, whatever. But, uh, next thing I knew I was living in BC and became part of a community of songwriters and, uh, and musicians and had a chance to like play weekly and learn how to write songs and learn how to play in a band. And all of a sudden I'm in a band, I'm leading yeah. a band and I'm getting invitations to go to Seattle to play. And it was certainly, you know, as careers go, nothing that was uh, intentional. It was seemed all very accidental. Yeah. Well, th that takes care of my question of uh, what made you decide to pursue a career in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, Making it as a musician, it seems like it's incredibly difficult in, in this country. I'm speaking to Canada. I had a friend where he was being produced by a, uh, a, a recognizable name, and it looked like he was starting to get traction, but it just kind of all fall, fell apart for him. What, yeah. what do you think your first big break was to continue down the road of being a performer, a musician, and a career in the arts? You know, it, it's, it's been so interesting, the industry, um, you know, you have the entertainment industry and the music industry. I, they're, they're, to me, they're two different things. And uh, the music industry that it's been the most exciting time probably to be alive. If I'd been around in the 60s or 70s, you had to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of studio equipment. You had to go into a studio to do an album. Uh, so that was kind of like the gatekeepers were like, if you were worthy of getting signed and put in there that, you know, that was what you were able to do. Now we're every laptop, 
is coming with software to record yeah. uh, anything you want. So it's like this really amazing time technologically. The industry, uh, the entertainment industry that I'm part of, like as a performer, it's just continually uh, imploded and been falling apart. So, you know, when I started, uh, if we did a, I think we spent, I can't remember. If, I think it was about $40,000 on our first album, but that was back when tapes still existed and people were paying 25, 20 bucks at least for a yep. CD. So you'd put your CD together, you'd sell a thousand or 2000 CDs. You'd have made everything back. You'd probably sell another twice, three times that much. And you would have made your money for your next album. Uh, all of a sudden streaming comes along, you know, Downloads come along, people start <laughs> burning CDs, uh, streaming, Napster, whatever, you know. So the friends that I've had in the industry that just wanted to be that kind of an artist, uh, the way it was when they started, they're not doing yeah. it anymore because it's impossible. Yeah. So for me, it was just one evolution after another. You know, at some in some points, I'll be honest, you get to a certain age where you're just like, holy crap, like this isn't really working out. And I also feel like I've invested 15 years yeah. in this skill set. Uh, do I start over again? I've had that conversation in my head and with my partner many, many times. Do I start over again? Or is there a way to move laterally? And uh, I mean, what they say in business, you know, to pivot and uh, try to find some other way. So that's what I've done. I've just constantly taken this experience and brokered it into another environment, which is why that CV reads yeah. that way. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask, like, it's, it's great that you could pursue your passions, but there's the reality of have to, having to make a living to pay for food and, and mm -hmm. shelter. So how long yep. were you pursuing your uh, career as a musician and a performer? Maybe, maybe you're still doing that, but did you, did you get to yep. a point where you're just like, I, I do have to change this. And what did you do? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. 2009, I came out with the best album I've ever done. It's called Tribe of One. I had the opportunity to work with some of the best indigenous and French and Métis musicians and singers. And it's like really uh, this incredible album and the best studio, the best producer. And then uh, I went on this, uh, my, my wife and I, we sold our house in Winnipeg so that we could spend a year traveling around the world with our two kids. So I really kind of cacked the <laughs> the release for that album because I wasn't around for the year to tour it. But when I came back to Canada, so I, I left from 2009 to 2010. Yeah. I came back to Canada thinking, I'll just pick up where I left off. I'll get back to booking tours and going back on the road and doing what I've always done. And I don't know what happened or why in that year, not just for me, for everyone. I came back, I'd say 80 to 85% of all of the venues that I played in across Canada for live uh, original music were no longer booking that right. kind of music. Th that meant all those producers and uh, promoters and, and booking agents, they weren't doing that anymore. And I was like, I, I, I would like the whole industry, the whole structure was yeah. gone. And, and uh, 
I had gone into schools with Tribe of One doing cultural and performance workshops. And I had a principal in Northwest Territories uh, drop me an email and said, we can't afford to bring Tribe of One up because that's a big production. He's like, could you come? And is there something you could do with our students just by yourself? And I just spent the year making these family videos, travel videos using music and and photos and videos uh, to tell a story, short little stories. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. I'll just bring my cameras and my laptop that I've been using yeah. for the year. And I went up there making it up literally as I went that week. But it it really kicked. Yeah. But the kids loved it. And I realized well, this is maybe something that I could do. And that became uh, kind of a, I've, I've developed this creative development mentorship program, which I do in schools now and have probably since 2010 or 11, whenever we got back, where I, yeah, come into a school now, we write a song, a school anthem, um, the kids learn how to sing it and perform it, and we record it. We tell the story that that song is trying to tell about their school or their community. Uh, visually, we film all of that, and then I put that together at the end of the week and deliver this uh, thing. So it's like that was then drawing on my background as a songwriter and a performer and a video producer and an event producer. With you know, it's, so it's like. It, it's kind of been that element of somebody. I just, I, you get me talking about something I'm yeah. passionate about and Whoa. I won't shut up. So I'm going to interrupt you in a to. second because you touched on something, <laughs> but I just want to interject only somebody with an artistic mind could pull that off because if you're an analytical thinker, you're not going to do it. You're going to look at the cost associated and all of the risks and you're not going to do it. Um, and I, yeah, and I think, you know, desperation, uh, it sucks. Like being backed in a corner or trying to figure something out. Is that, we all hate that. I, I also, you know, as a slam poet, I realized that uh, that was something else that I could offer to schools. It would be uh, easier for me to come in and teach slam poetry. <clears throat> and uh, if you don't know what slam poetry is, very quickly, it's this combination of creative writing and creative performance. So, it, you know, traditional poetry was written to uh, be published in magazines or books, whatever, and read by the um, your audience. Slam poetry is just performance-based. You never experience a slam poem unless the poet performs it, which becomes this really great, it removes the barriers for a lot of students that maybe go, I can't write because I don't know, I'm not good at spelling or I'm not good at punctuation or whatever. And it's like, you know what? It's awesome. Nobody's going to read it but you. And it's been a really great. So there was this one school that I'd gone for two years um, teaching uh, slam poetry to. And so I was supposed to be there on a Monday. It was up north. So on Thursday, just a few days before, book, planes booked, everything's booked. I'm definitely going. But I phoned the principal just to say, hey, I'm just letting you know I'm going to be on the way. I'm going to fly in on the weekend. I'll be there Monday morning. I said, is there anything else? You know, you still want to do slam poetry? And she said, why? What else do you do? I do songwriting and do some video stuff. And she's like, she said, could you write a song that would involve all 350 students in our school and make a video? And could you do that if we broke all the kids up? And because I need the gig, 
I'm like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, no problem. I'll just throw my stuff in. And I literally didn't think it through until I was walking up to the door Monday morning with my bags of stuff and my guitar. And then I was like, whoa, wait, what did I say I was gonna do? <laughs> I'm like, this is ridiculous. How am I supposed to include 350 kids? And I just went for it because by that point, yeah. it's too late. Okay. Well, do you do you get nervous? And, like, are you nervous? How do you handle stress? Yeah, but uh, thankfully, I don't think things through much in advance. So by the time I'm stressed out, it's pretty much like 15 minutes from yeah. go time, and it's just like, well. Here we go. We'll figure it out. That is a great bit and, of advice, though. Don't yeah. think things through. <laughs> Just do it. Uh, and let's be honest. Let's say it yeah. sucked. Like, I know that I'm going to be able to play some songs with kids. Maybe I write a terrible song. Maybe I write a song after that week nobody wants to sing. Like, I'm not putting anybody at risk. Uh, no, there's no money that's, you know, somebody's going to lose. Nobody's counting on the return of a hundred grand or anything. Like it, it does help if I do stress myself out, if I get stressed out, I'm like, what am I really worried about? What I'm really worried about, honestly, is that I'm not going to uh, meet my expectations for myself and what I want to deliver to this school. And I have very high uh, expectations of myself and of art uh, and developing community and, and, you know, helping students in particular, but anyone find their creative skill set and, and give them an opportunity to discover what they're good at, have an opportunity to shine because when they can do that, they gain confidence. And that's something that when I leave, that could change their life, not just for that year, but for the rest of their life inspiring work and how did it turn out oh it's absolutely incredible it was deafening in that gym it was i you know you you touched on i was joking that you know the sommelier uh word so as a wine expert yeah. as somebody you know uh you learn to appreciate wine using all of your senses how does it smell what does it look like how does it taste what is it you know and you're using all these descriptors to really pay attention to what's in your glass well i took that training actually from being a wine uh sommelier into the school so when i walk in i just start actually walking through the school with my cameras going like, what are the posters that are up? What's the artwork? Are there any slogans? What do I hear in the staff room? What are challenges? What are struggles? I just find so many people walk through this life unconsciously, um, kind of like they're, you know, <clears throat> spectators in the events of their own life. And I think I walked down the hallway in that very first school and there was this giant sign that said, if you change your words, you'll change your mindset. A mindset's too cumbersome of a word for songwriting, but it's like change your words, you can change the world. That's a lyric in a song. That became the chorus of this song, and it became this real anthem. And these kids sang so definitely loud. My, but there's a video of it online. And my favorite part is somewhere in the song, this little kid, you know, it's like, um, <clears throat> You're not, you're not alone. No, you're never on your own. I sing. And then all the kids are like, you're not alone. No, you're never on your own. And these kids were singing it so loud. It hurt all of our ears. When there's this one little boy, he gets up on his knees 
and he plugs his ears and then he screams at the top of his lungs. It's like it hurt, but he wasn't going to be left out of the moment. And that was fantastic. Oh, that's that sounds amazing. Listen, I'm a parent. I have three kids and I've often said um, parenting is all about managing your guilt because you're not trying to uh, you're really trying not to screw up a human being. You (laughs) talk about putting pressure on myself. Um, You mentioned uh, while you were speaking there, and I really I'm excited to talk to you about this. You guys decided to, I'm guessing, sell everything and tour the world for. And did you mention that you went on a tour of the world for one year or two years? It was it was just over a year. Okay, and you have kids. Yep, two kids. And how old were they um, when you decided to do this trip? Our son was uh, 13 and our daughter was nine. 13 and nine. And you took them out of school. Yeah. And you could we talk about that? Yeah. How you came up with the idea and then you actually did it. So this is the thing. I think everybody, everybody listening, we all have a dream. Maybe you want to jump out of a plane or maybe you want to start a side hustle or maybe you want to travel to Spain or I don't know. Like we all have a dream. And I think a lot of people will will fall into this trap of being like, well, this isn't the right time. I'm too busy or the kids are in school. I got to wait till the kids are out of school or I'm at this point in my career or I'm at this. And we keep saying, well, someday, someday, someday. Right. We all do that. And my dad had never been really sick a day in his life and suddenly got diagnosed with one of these weird cancers and just within maybe six months kind of a thing from diagnosis, he was gone. And because of that car accident and a number of, you know, I've had so many health problems and I've been laid up. And I, so I remember, I'm going to be honest and say that Zara and I might have been those people that said someday we should do this thing with our kids. And maybe never did it. But because I watched how fast my dad was gone, I think if I wait too long and say, what if someday, someday, what if I wait one day too long and all of a sudden that happens to me? And so it was like, I don't want to do that. So I think, you know, that experience with my dad, while it was still sort of fresh the year after, we're just like, are we going to do this? Then let's do it. And uh, we... You know, there's so many things that you can figure out. You just can't figure out a year in advance. So I'm really lucky that um, my partner and I are kind of on the same page. She's a tattoo artist. She's a painter and a tattoo artist. So we both have that creative approach to problem solving and to life. So, you know, you say, okay, we're going to sell when the kids get out of school. So we, you know, made it June, end of June, beginning of July. That was when we were going to leave and we started traveling and, and we kind of picked our trip. Where do we want to go? Spent the first, I think, three months just traveling across Canada because we knew we probably didn't want to go back to Winnipeg. We were going to try to find somewhere else. And when you can live anywhere, why should you live somewhere? Like, why choose that somewhere? So we went coast to coast to see. And then, you know, Zara had a friend in Hawaii. She was, She's like, should we call up, you know? Should I see if Sean would let us come stay? And we stay with that guy for a couple of weeks and his family. And then we're like, there's a family wedding in Malaysia. Well, let's go to Malaysia. And then let's go to my Australia and stay with family. And let's go to New Zealand. And we kind of, then we spent the last three months, we spent three months in Europe driving all over the place. And then the last month in the UK before we came home. 
And I did that because, you know, for a family, I, you know, I probably knew it would be really, um, it'd be really amazing. I didn't realize how much it would define who we have been ever since there. Um, the, the, the tightness as a family, the closeness, the fact that this pivotal moment in all of our lives that we were all there for each moment. And it wasn't like me coming back from tour trying to tell my kids, my wife, oh, so then this amazing thing happened or I met this really interesting person. They were there for all of those. I was there for all of their amazing experiences. And I really wanted my kids at that time when you want, you know, at 13, probably more than nine, but as a young tween or whatever they call them, you want the world to, of possibility to be opening up for your children, for them to start to see themselves with new eyes in the world and, and imagine well, what could I do? Maybe I could go here, maybe I could go there. And it's like, I saw in my kids' friends more than in our house, the world was shrinking to the size of a Xbox controller, yeah. you know? It was like, uh, and I hated that and i was like screw that we're not gonna let that happen so we went and and did have that amazing experience we thought we'd homeschool our kids that's almost impossible yeah. i don't know how anybody homeschools in the first place <laughs> but if you're traveling it forget yeah. it like it's ridiculous so we we focused on them reading and just the geography part of the world. Where are we? I remember when we got to Europe, you know, if, you, if you're in Canada, you could drive for what, 40 hours, you know, across the country, you still get out where they're still speaking English, there's still Canadian money, you're still in the country. I remember when we got to Italy, and you're just trying to pick up like grazie, grazie. It's just some simple little thing. Uh, and then we drive across the border. We get to Nice and we get out. We're like, oh, merci. And my son's like, why did you say that? It's like, well, we're in France now. What? When did that happen? It was only a two-hour drive from Milan to Nice or whatever. And so then we're like getting gas. We're driving. We jump out. We're like, oh, danke, danke. And then he's like, why did you say that? Oh, we're in Germany now. And it's, and for our kids, they're just like, what's going on? Every time we get in the back of the car, we get out in a different country. Yeah. And that was so fun. What an amazing gift. Do they still talk about it to this day? Oh, 100%. And can you think of an absolute profound moment on that trip or an experience? Did Does anything stand out to you the most? There, I mean, there are some really... There's probably a collection of like hundreds of simple little moments that outside of our family wouldn't maybe seem so profound. But the I, I think a lot of parents, you talk about parental guilt. Okay, I'll, I'll, this just dropped into my mind. My what my my son is very sarcastic, always has been really quick with words in a funny way. And I think I treated him too much like an adult when he was younger. He was coming back at me. And so I would come back at him almost as an equal. Yeah. And Zara would talk to me a couple of times and she'd be like, I think you're being like too sarcastic with Zara. Like, it just feels like it's got too much of an edge. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's a dad and his son. It's all good, whatever. When we started traveling and I would start going through the footage that I had taken that day. Yeah. And I heard 
myself as a video editor interacting with my son. I hated yeah. it. I hated it. And I was so glad that I saw that because it changed. Like he says he never knew anything. He says it never bothered him, whatever. And maybe it didn't. And thank God it didn't. But I realized that wasn't the way I wanted to treat my son. And, but, and, you know, I just think of all of the, the risks that they took, the experiences that they had. I remember we were walking through Malaysia on our first day, uh, Penang or wherever we were, and uh, Batu Ferengi, <laughs> just racing vehicles and it's loud and the diesel trucks and, and you're walking on the sidewalk and you're darting between vehicles, everything that you would never do back here in Canada. And I remember Zion said, I, this is nothing like I thought it was going to be. And I realized in that moment, geez, we never actually talked about Malaysia or what their expectations were. And I said, what did you think it was going to be like? Because Riel says, yeah, me neither. And I said, well, what did you guys think it was going to be like? And they're like, I thought it was going to be a quiet little village where you're going to be out in the forest. And uh, so then everything that they did was just such a risk and all of these firsts and to be there as a family, watching your kids gain confidence, meeting more and more people, walking into more and more situations that they never could have possibly dreamed at any age. And here they were just tackling them day after day after day. I was just so proud of them. And I think that was profound for us as a family. Congratulations on doing that. That is, that is amazing. And not everyone would do it. Have your kids followed you into the arts? Because your wife is also a artist as well. Yeah, so she's a tattoo artist. Yeah. She's got a studio here in Victoria called Fly the Cage. She's incredible. Our son, uh, when COVID hit, you know, both of the our kids were having a hard time getting jobs and keeping jobs and getting any kind of money because of the shutdowns and just the way money was moving and, ch- and culture was changing right as they were emerging into adulthood, really. So... My wife went to Zion, uh, that's our son, and said, would you be interested in becoming a tattoo artist? uh, And would you want to start an apprenticeship with me? And he hadn't actually thought about that, I don't think. And so he thought about it for a bit and came back and said, yeah, I I think I would love to do that. So he's been doing that for about over a year, at least maybe a year and a half. And I just saw one of his last tattoos, absolutely incredible. So he definitely has. Um, they're both, you know, where my story started with the end of my athletic dream. My kids are both uh, athletes. They're really good. Uh, competitive dodgeball is this huge. I think dodgeball is having a moment that maybe beach volleyball had 15 years ago where I don't know about you, but I remember hearing about beach volleyball, maybe played it once. And the next thing I knew, I'd turn on the Olympics and it's this Olympic sport with 15,000 people in the stands. And I was like, when did this happen? I think that's happening with competitive dodgeball. So our kids have both gotten chosen to play for Team Canada uh, at Worlds, which is coming up in Edmonton in, you know, a couple weeks. So 25 countries from around the world are are coming to Canada for the first Worlds since... uh, COVID hit two years ago. So um, 
they've kind of definitely taken that athletic yeah. path that, yeah, for themselves. That's amazing. Um, it is definitely on my list to speak to tattoo artists. Um, and when I speak, finally speak to a tattoo artist, I, I need to take, take the approach of people listening to it, want to know how they got started in the tattoo industry mm. and not, um, how you put the most amazing artwork on somebody's skin. It seems like magic to me. I don't know how it's right. done. That is amazing. I 100% agree. Uh, what I what Zara is such a colorful artist yeah. that I'm used to her paintings just being so rich in color and I never imagined that her tattoos could be the same like the shading and the blending and the subtlety. I'm just like I'm with yeah. you. I'm like how does this even happen? I'm not noticing um sleeve tattoos on you though. <laughs> why why has that not happened? Uh, I, I wanted Zara's very, very first tattoo because I knew she was going to be really great at it. And she needed a, a human canvas that uh, she could take her very first one. So I got her very first one and I got my son's very first one on my calf. Oh, that's amazing. Between you and me, Kim, I would never have even thought about getting a tattoo yeah. in my life. I just know that. I would never have even thought of it if it hadn't been for her. So... um and I have a whole bunch of maple leaves on my shoulder yeah. just because it kind of went with the whole Canadiana theme of yeah. the music and the kind of thing that I do. But uh, yeah, I am not the toughest guy when it comes to those needles. <laughs> I've seen Zara's artwork. She's made me even think that I need to drive out to Victoria to get a tattoo, but I, I don't know if I can pull it off. Um, Rick, I often like to talk to people and I hate calling them failures, but... Um, have you experienced failures in your life that really stand out to you? And what, what did you learn from it? Profoundly. I mean, the life as an artist, as a creative person, I think one of the most difficult things is that your heart is tied up with everything your brain is doing. So it, it's not this dispassionate, I'm doing data entry on a ledger, on a Excel sheet, and I go away at the end of the day, and nothing of my heart and passion is in that, um, which isn't to <clears throat> criticize, you know, professions that are not heart driven. It makes this really tough. I mean, the amount of, like, for instance, I have this, like I said, this creative development mentorship program that offers schools. I've probably offered, I took the time throughout COVID to create courses, to develop all of the material, to publish uh, eBooks, uh, professional development eBooks for teachers and subs and TAs, put together all of this and stuff, hired a company to help me put my website together so that it could be like this easy membership thing. Uh, anybody could go get it. I've contacted hundreds of schools and principals so far and haven't had a single sale. It's not uncommon in my life. I would probably approach hundreds of schools and communities every single year, maybe hear nothing back, uh, maybe get, you know, whatever the, the percentage of even getting a response is maybe 5%, the amount of being ignored or somebody saying, I remember going through this whole process of, um, a school in Vancouver is going to bring me in. And, and they were asking all these kind of 
questions to vet me? Do you have, um, you know, your references and the people we can talk to whenever? And then when we went through this entire huge convoluted process, I think they were expecting me to come for like 500 bucks a week or something. I'm like, how the hell do you think I'm making a living if you're going to like, I can't, I was so mad, right? Um, the amount of grants that uh, I've applied for and don't get that CV that I sent you. I'm just like the, the position for artist in residence comes up for the city of Victoria. I'm just like, as I start putting my CV together to apply for this, I'm like, wow, I really hadn't had an opportunity for a few years to step back and just see how much I have to offer and how relevant all of these experiences would be for developing other artists in the city and for connecting with the community. And I didn't even get an interview. Yeah. So to keep plugging away when there's overwhelming, like disinterest and busyness and maybe misunderstanding or a lot of people, I, I pitched a show a couple years ago. Uh, it was going to be a wine show, travel show. And I pitched it to, um, well, I was supposed to have a little crew and we were going to do this whole thing. And then I was shoot a pilot and then COVID happens and it's this 2020. And I'm like, well, I could sit here doing nothing or I could just try to put the pilot together myself and communicate the gist of the idea. So I did, and I managed to get on the phone with the people who pitch those shows to CBC or Netflix and Amazon and HBO and all those kind of things. So was, I, I had this amazing success at getting to the person who could maybe take my idea into the room for the broadcaster or the, you know, the network that would produce it. And it was the wildest conversation. They'd be like, well, we've seen this already. So you're like, well, this is how it's different from anything you've seen. Well, we haven't seen that before. Nobody would understand that. Well, here's how it's kind of like what you've seen before, but different. And I was like, I can't believe I'm talking to people who produce creative content. Yeah. They're like, it's a downside if I've seen it before and I understand it. And it's a downside if it's totally innovative and original and I don't know what box to put yeah. it in. That kind of stuff is constant in my industry. Yeah. And for me as a person. And so just, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like the reason I'm still here, still doing this is that the, I don't know what else to do. And I've, I remember being a young artist making this um, very insincere threat to the universe. If like, this doesn't work out, that's it. I quit. I give up. Like nobody gives a shit yeah. if you do, yeah. except for That's you. Right. But I never did quit. And I realized at some point I'm just full of it. Just look in the mirror, Rick, and say, if this doesn't work out, it's going to hurt. And it's going to remind you of the other thousand times it hurt. And you're still going to get up tomorrow and be driven to try again. So stop talking about giving up and just go, well, I'm going to learn from it somehow. and I'm going to keep going. Um, while you were speaking, you reminded me of a situation where I interviewed a tax manager and going into that interview and I mentioned it to him, I thought it was going to be boring because it was accounting. And I was amazed when I, I didn't even recognize or think about 
where his passion lied with being a tax manager. And he told me that his passion lied when he has conversations with his clients and learns about their businesses and their passions. And I had never thought about it because I thought he was just running numbers. The spirit of this podcast that I'm producing is to help people that are in a midlife career change situation. And I think it would be hard for you to wrap your mind around a person that's sitting in a career that they're not enjoying, that all of their passions mm. have left them, but they have what is called the golden handcuffs where they're thinking about their pension. And one of the most awful things I could think about is somebody hanging on to something that they're miserable doing for 30 years because they get a pension at the end of it that will ultimately right. maybe pay for their utilities going into retirement. What advice could you give that person that's sitting in their cubicle, hating life? What kind of advice do you have for them to maybe, maybe help them find their passions? They know what they are. They know we all know what we're passionate about. Um, but this is this golden handcuff thing. Let me just be like fully transparent. Like when I was working on the Trans Canada Pipeline, I was making just scads of money. I had nothing to spend, and I was just banking thousands and thousands of dollars. And I was meet these old guys on the pipeline and been doing it their whole life. And I'd be like, what the hell? You're like 63 years old and you're still out here on the pipeline doing this? Like, what, what do you do with your money? What, what do you do? And it's like, they'd all, their lives were basically in ruins. That, you know, most of them were, I don't know, relationships don't always work out. But these guys were just like, uh, their lives were almost always ruined. Uh, they were alone or they were whatever. This one guy just struck me though. He was 63 years old. He was hanging on for two more years so that he could get that pension or do whatever he wanted to do. And I said, well, what, what are you? he's done it his whole life. And he's like every second year. I'm like, why, why are you still here? Cause he hated yeah. it. It's like every, every second year he would buy a truck with cash. You buy a new truck with cash. And I was like, I remember walking away from that conversation going, I am not going to be that guy. Who gives a crap about your stupid truck or whatever? The thing, I'm going to tell you something. As a traveling artist, I stay with a lot of people. Over the years, that's been one of the ways that I've um, managed to be an independent artist, um, making money on every tour because, uh, you know, I tour really simply and inexpensively. And if I could stay with people, certainly in the beginning years, I would do that. So I'm staying with lots of people. Part of the fact that I'm just in town for one night, stay with them, and then I'm going to leave. I would get a lot of people, and I would do a show where I'd be sharing lots of like personal stories and stuff, and you make a connection with your audience as an artist. And so if I came back to their house, and I would sit down with them to have a glass of wine before bed, it would be almost like confession hour. And they would... Time and after again, the hosts would just pour out their frustration with life, with their career, with why they felt like they couldn't do whatever they want, because they'd also know that I was leaving the next day and I was going to take their confession with me and they wouldn't have to look at me the next day or whatever. And I've just heard so many people, um, they built their dream house and they've lived in it for two years and now they want to sell it. 
because they don't care. It's not about the house. They're, we think it's about the house or we think it's about the truck. Uh, but it isn't. It's about like the life we're actually living and who we're going to live it with and why we put that relationship and that core of what we really, really want and what really brings us life uh, down below all of the, the levels of priority. I think that's why, I mean, I'm not trying to be uh, insincere or um, about anybody who's got like hard financial you know, situations. I, I, it, sometimes I feel like you can come across as a real dick. Yeah. If you're saying like you could make the choice if you wanted to, it would be so hard. Um, and so it's ultimately, do you want to pay that cost? Um, so for me, I, but I, I keep having these conversations. So I was thinking about two years ago, I was in a school and I, I went over and there was a, it was a husband and wife that were both teachers and uh, he was going to retire earlier than her. And uh, he said it was like for teachers, if they taught an extra couple of years, they would get more on their pension and it would total however much over all the years of their life kind of a thing. And I said, so are you going to do that? <clears throat> and he had had a colleague who hung in, taught an extra couple of years. Now she's got it. She retired. And literally within six months, she got cancer and died. And he's like, no, the minute I can retire, I'm retiring. Because when is enough enough? It's never going to be. Uh, there's, I think that was the deal with our traveling. When is it right to pull the plug on your career for a year and take off and spend time a year as a family? When, when is that ever going to be the perfect time? It's never going to happen. So I think for me, continuing to meet unhappy people um, reminds me of like, yeah, I don't have a pension. I'm probably never going to be able to retire. I'm not set up the way they're set up, but uh I've lived every week of my life, not like a retired person, but doing something that I love my whole life. So I have a, I find it absolutely impossible that I'm going to get to the end of my life and go, oh, I wish I had more, what, more trucks, more, a bigger house. Uh, I don't know. We all have to, we all have to find that way ourselves. And I just think, you know, I woke up this morning and I, I was thinking about kids that I work with in Northern and remote communities. And when I apply, I hear that their, their communities apply for grants through anybody, Canada Council for the Arts or anybody to, you know, provide an opportunity for these kids. Maybe to do stuff that I do, video, music, production, film, any kind of stuff like that. <clears throat> because they'd often like to tie it in with their culture, uh, save the language, tell stories, record stories of elders, that kind of stuff. And they never get accepted. Because the art council will say, you don't need us. Just go do it. Just get a camera and a laptop and do yep. it. And it's fair. You don't need the art council. But it's not fair if they've never seen what you're talking about. How can you picture yourself doing something you've never even imagined? And I think sometimes that's why the power of stories, for me, 
You know, when I wrote that book, Four Homeless Millionaires, How One Family Found Riches by Leaving It All Behind, really the only reason I wanted to write that book, it was in case there was families like us that were sitting out there going, should we do that? That seems really irresponsible. Maybe our kids won't, you know, want to hang out with us and won't want to have the adventure of a lifetime because they might miss out on, you know, middle school, a year in middle school or something. And it's like, I just wanted to say, hey, I, I can't tell you what to do. You can't tell anyone what to do. But maybe if they can see, there is somebody else out there that did this thing. Somebody in the middle of their career when it wasn't going very well, pivoted and they figured out how to broker their experiences and their expertise into some new thing. And they just lay their ass on the line and they went for it. And you know what? They're not making nearly as much as they would have if they'd stayed with the, the golden handcuffs, but they're happier. I love Monday as much as Friday. And that to me is worth more than, than whatever those golden handcuffs would be worth. Did that even come close to answering the question? <laughs> it 100% did. And congratulations on your career, but most importantly, congratulations on the way that you're living your life and the gifts that you gave to your children to take them on a trip of a lifetime. Rick, you've been very generous with your time today and just thank you for coming on this podcast. It was awesome, Kim. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Job Talk podcast. For more information, please visit us at thejobtalk.com. Our podcast music was created by our friend Mike Malone in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada.